Hey guys, and welcome to Clear Skies. I'm your host, Chloe, and I'd like to thank you for joining me for this episode. Sorry it's been a while. I was actually pretty sick there for a bit, and then I also had to move, so things have been a little bit hectic, but I am feeling much better, and if you guys are ready, I'm ready to dive into some new constellations. Today we'll be discussing our second zodiacal constellation, and the fourth of our six winter circle constellations, Gemini. Gemini, or the twins, is a bright constellation with a fun shape and it's pretty easy to find. So today we're going to discuss the general shape of this constellation and how to find it, the specific stars and deep sky objects within its boundaries, and lastly, we'll go through the mythology and history of this constellation in various cultures. Again, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate each and every one of you guys. Alright, now let's go visit our favorite twins. Now, Gemini is visible from November to April, but it's best seen from January to March. Again, this is the fourth of our six winter circle constellations, the last two of which we will cover in the very next episode. This constellation is visible from positive 90 to negative 60 degrees latitude, and it's a mid-sized constellation, the 30th largest of the 88. Now, while it isn't super large, it packs in a lot of interesting stars and deep sky objects. Gemini has 10 named stars and a dozen or so deep sky objects, namely clusters and nebulae, which are highly varied and super interesting. Again, it is also one of the zodiacal constellations, meaning that it lays along the sun's apparent path in the sky. This constellation is pretty recognizable due to the two bright stars which the constellation is named for. It can be found using either Orion or using the Big Dipper. If you start with Orion, you'll want to find Orion's belt first. Below the belt, you can find the bright blue star Rigel at his right knee and draw a line to the bright red star above his belt at his left shoulder. If you extend this line, you will soon find yourself at the two bright stars Castor and Pollux, which look very similar to each other. Alternately, if you want to begin with the Big Dipper, you're going to start at the base of the handle, so where it meets the cup, and draw a line to the bottom outer corner of the cup. Extend this line, and again, you will soon find yourself at Gemini. Now, the constellation itself looks like a set of two people, with the two bright stars, Castor and Pollux, as two heads, and fainter stars creating almost like two stick figures. You can see a back and a pair of legs extending from each of these head stars, as well as an arm to the outside of the constellation, and they look to be holding hands in the middle. It's honestly pretty cute, and this has led to associations with a pair of brothers, as well as a married couple in some mythologies. If you would like to see illustrations of how to find this constellation, or of how the constellation itself looks, you can find that online in our blog at clearskieswithchloe.com, and it's also linked below in the show notes. There will also be beautiful photographs of all of the objects and stars discussed, so you don't want to miss it. Now, as I said before, this constellation has a whole lot of deep sky objects, but also its stars are really interesting. It was legitimately really difficult to decide which ones to include because I wanted to talk about all of them. In the end, I chose three stars and nine deep sky objects. Now, the brightest star in this constellation is a red giant named Pollux, which represents the head of one of the twins. 
Its name aptly comes from an Arabic phrase meaning head of the second twin. The name Pollux is typically associated with a boxer, but in Greek it means, quote, very sweet, which is thought to refer to the kinship between the two brothers. How cute. This star is the 17th brightest in our night sky and is 33 light years away from us. This is another fairly cool and large star with two times the mass of our sun and nine times the radius. This star is about 4,500 Kelvin and has a light yellowish orange color, and it shines 30 times brighter than our sun. Now, despite being the brightest star in the constellation, this star is labeled as the beta star, which would typically be the second brightest. We've seen this before in the Big Dipper stars of Ursa Major. Bayer would sometimes assign these designations based on the order they would rise in, and in Germany, Castor appears to rise first. In the southern hemisphere, this is the opposite, and Pollux rises first. An interesting fact is that this star has one giant exoplanet, called a hot Jupiter. This planet has almost two and a half times the mass of Jupiter, and has an orbital period of 590 days. Yet, it's not much further away from its sun than we are, at about the orbital distance of Mars. Which is why it's called a hot Jupiter, of course. <laughs> this planet, Pollux b, or Thestius, was discovered in 2006 and is the closest exoplanet found so far. Now, Thestius is orbiting pretty close to its star, which is much larger than our own, and so this planet receives about 16 times the radiation that we do at the surface, and its star, Pollux, would appear quite large in the sky, about five and a half times the size of our sun. Now, the second brightest star is the head of our second twin, Castor. Its name comes from the Arabic term meaning, quote, the head of the foremost twin. This star is the 23rd brightest overall and is a bit further away at 51 light years. This star is quite interesting as the single star that we see is the combined light of three double star pairs, all gravitationally related as a sextuplet. <laughs> now, each of these pairs is very different as well. So, Castor A is the first pair. And that is a bright blue star, which is twice the temperature of our sun and almost three times the mass. And its pair is a small dwarf star that orbits around it. The second pair is Castor B. So Castor B is a white, slightly cooler star, which also has a red dwarf companion. These two pairs orbit each other with a period of 467 years. Now, Castor C is the faintest pair of the bunch, comprised of two red dwarfs that have a combined mass of around half of our sun. Castor C is an eclipsing binary, so the two red dwarfs orbit around each other every 19 hours, and they appear to go in front of each other from our viewpoint. This pair of red dwarfs orbit the four-star system of Castor A and B in a long elliptical order of greater than 10,000 years. Now, all of these stars may be part of a huge physically related group of stars referred to as the Castor Moving Group, which includes several notable stars, including Vega in Lyra, in Fomalhaut, or the Autumn Star, in Pisces Astronus, or the Southern Fish, which we will discuss Vega and Fomalhaut in future episodes. The last star we're going to discuss is Upsilon Geminorum. This star is different than any we've discussed before, and it's really, really cool. So this is a binary system of a red dwarf and a white dwarf, and it's an archetypal example of a thing called a dwarf nova. 
A dwarf nova is one of several types of cataclysmic variable stars, which is a star which regularly increases in brightness by a large factor, then fades back down. A dwarf nova is one of these variable stars which specifically consists of a white dwarf which accretes matter from its companion star. In this type of system, the white dwarf is so close to the companion star that it pulls it and distorts it into an egg shape, and the white dwarf has a disk of matter surrounding it, called an accretion disk, which is being pulled off of the donor star. This matter will fall from the inner edge of the accretion disk onto the body of the white dwarf, adding to that star's mass. If this continues for long enough and the mass of the white dwarf increases enough, this can actually result in a supernova, which will completely destroy the white dwarf star. Now, these types of stars are still being studied, but current data and theories suggest that the variation in brightness comes from instability in the accretion disk. Now, as the gas in the disk increases in temperature, the viscosity increases as well, and when it reaches a critical temperature, it can result in an increase in the flow of mass through the disk. So the whole disk heats up and increases in brightness. The mass being transferred from the donor star, however, did not change, and now that flow rate is less than the flow rate in the disk. So the disk will naturally drop back down below that critical temperature and return to its less bright, bright state as it averages out with the new matter from the other star. So that is what they're thinking accounts for these like huge fluctuations in brightness. But again, we're still studying it. Now, this star system is quite far away at 304 light years, and both stars are fairly dim. The primary star is the white dwarf, and it has 120 times the mass of our sun, but has 0 0.008 times the radius. So it is very small and incredibly dense. And it's also very, very hot at five times the temperature of our sun. Now the secondary is the red dwarf, which is the one whose matter is being taken. And it's quite large with 43 times the mass of our sun and 42 times the radius. Now these two orbit each other every four hours and 11 minutes, and they are an eclipsing pair from our viewpoint. Okay, so, now we're going to talk about the deep sky objects in this constellation. There are a lot of them, and they are unusually striking. Now, I know every episode I say that the deep sky objects are beautiful, and that is always true, but I'm telling you, these are magnificent. They're so great. <laughs> the Orion Nebula is typically the one people think of when they're considering beautiful objects in the sky. It helps, of course, that it's naked eye visible. It's super easy to see through even like a small telescope. You can see so much detail. But the objects in this constellation give it a run for its money. Several of these I had never heard of or seen pictures of before, and I was shocked at how cool they are. So I cannot express enough. You should definitely go give them a look. Google it. Go to the website at clearskieswithchloe.com. Whatever it takes, definitely look at them. So the first one we're going to talk about is the Medusa Nebula. This is a planetary nebula located near the border with Canis Minor. 
So if you're looking at Gemini, it's on the side of Gemini that is closer to Orion. This is fairly large, greater than four light years across, and it's named for the long filaments of glowing gas, which are reminiscent of the serpent hair of the Gorgon, Medusa. This nebula was discovered at UCLA in 1955 and believed to be a supernova remnant until the Soviets confirmed it was likely a planetary nebula in the 1970s. So if it's a planetary nebula, it was formed when a red giant turned into a white dwarf and shed its outer layers. Now, this one has a low brightness and is about 1,500 light years away, so you'll need at least an 8-inch telescope if you want to see it. Or, you know, Google or the website. <laughs> now, the second one is the Eskimo Nebula, or NGC 2392, which I personally think is the most beautiful object in this constellation. This one is a bipolar nebula, meaning that it has two separate lobes on either side of a single star, and it's thought to occur from a supernova within a binary system due to the gravitational effect of that second star. Or it could also be from a large, close exoplanet, which would have a similar gravitational pull to a small star. Now, this nebula was discovered by William Herschel in 1787, and it got its name from its striking appearance. Through a telescope, this nebula looks like a face surrounded by a parka, or, to me, like a lion with a large mane as it has a bright white dwarf star visible in the center, with a mane created by these layers of gas that used to be a part of a star very much like our own sun. This one, the core of the nebula is pretty small at only a third of a light year across, and it is 5,000 light years away, but it can actually be seen with a small telescope. This nebula has gas clouds which are so complex they are still not entirely understood and the filaments of the outer disk, which create that parka or that mane, are bright orange, and they are a whole light year long. So I'm telling you, it's gorgeous and also very interesting. <laughs> Up next, we have one that is another dual-lobed planetary nebula, and this one is NGC 2371 and NGC 2372. It was originally thought to be two objects, which is why it has these two names, but it was later realized that it's just a dual-lobed nebula. Now, this one can be seen with an amateur telescope and is located to the southwest of Castor. This one has a cool symmetrical shape, and to be honest, it looks just like a TIE fighter from Star Wars, which is the whole reason I'm bringing this up. It legitimately looks like a TIE, a tie fighter. You should go look at it. <laughs> Alright, so next we have the Jellyfish Nebula which is a remnant from a supernova that occurred anywhere from 3,000 to 30,000 years ago and is about 5,000 light years away. This remnant has two different size halves with entirely different structures and emissions. Now this thing is huge. It's about 70 light years in size and there's also a neutron star at the site of the original star. This is one of the most studied supernova remnants as the star was still within the molecular cloud complex when the supernova occurred. Therefore, the nebula is interacting with these clouds as it evolves and has a more complex shape and evolution. The southeast portion of the molecular clouds is dense and clumpy, leading to the nebula having a ring-like appearance, while the northeast portion is interacting with neutral hydrogen, which is much less dense. Therefore, the nebula has a longer, less compressed shape in this area. The expansion to the west is generally exaggerated, while the expansion to the east is compressed. Within this supernova remnant is also a Plarion, or Pulsar Wind Nebula, 
which is powered by the electrically charged particles emitted by a pulsar. The Crab Nebula in Taurus is the prototype for this type of nebula. Now, this just scratches the surface of what's going on in this supernova remnant, so you can probably see why it's been so heavily studied. It's also quite beautiful, so I recommend checking it out. Our last object is Jaminga, a neutron star resulting from a supernova about 300,000 years ago. This name is derived from an Italian phrase meaning, quote, it's not there. This guy is super dim and is 815 light years away. This neutron star is notable in that it was the first unidentified gamma ray source discovered and the first example of a radio quiet pulsar. It was first discovered as a source of gamma rays by NASA's gamma ray telescope, the SAS-2. So I'm mainly mentioning this because it's an important part of astronomical history. Now, this constellation has two meteor showers, the Geminids and the Epsilon Geminids. The Epsilon Geminids are not spectacular, as they do overlap with the Orionids and were only recently confirmed as a separate shower. So for us, it's, you're not really going to be able to tell that it's a separate shower, and I would not make a special effort to see them. Just go see the Orionids when they peak, if meteors are your thing. On the other hand, the Geminids are one of the very best to watch. These come through in mid-December, which means you're likely to have a nice clear sky, and the meteors are bright and fast. With over 100 meteors per hour on average, this is a beautiful shower to see. The source of these meteors is an odd asteroid called 3200 Patheon, which is shedding particles due to a collision in the far distant past. The Earth moves with these particles once a year, giving us our beautiful meteor shower. This constellation is, of course, a very popular one, so some of you may already know the Greek myths surrounding it. Unfortunately, I wasn't really able to find any stories from other cultures, just like general ideas of their associations. So we're going to start with the Greek myth, and later on, if I find a good source for other cultures' myths, then I may just do a dedicated episode to each of those cultures, because I would love to know the stories behind these. So if any of you listeners know any of the mythology surrounding these constellations in non-Greek or Babylonian culture, let me know, please. <laughs> now, the names Castor and Pollux refer to two sons in Greek mythology. They were the sons of a mortal mother, Leda, but had two different fathers. Like many Greek myths, there are a few variations within this one. Now, Castor was the mortal brother, the son of Tyndareus, and Pollux was the immortal, being the son of Zeus. Some variations state that they were conceived on the same day, that Zeus visited Leda in the form of a swan, seen as the constellation Cygnus, and seduced her, and that same night she also slept with her husband. She had a nice night. <laughs> Both of these encounters were fruitful, and she bore four children. In one version, the immortal children were even born from an actual egg, I guess because he was in the form of a swan. Now, the most popularly accepted version states that Pollux and Helen, like Helen of Troy, were children of Zeus, and Castor and Clytemnestra were born of her husband. The twin boys were supposedly inseparable in their looks and actions, even dressing alike as twins often do, but with different skill sets. 
Castor was a great horseman and warrior, while Pollux was a great boxer. These skills came in use as they traveled with Jason and the Argonauts, seeking the Golden Fleece and on other cool Greek adventures. It's said that on these adventures, the pair saved their crewmates on several occasions, with the most famous involving a really bad storm. Due to this, it is said that they were imbued with the power to save shipwrecked sailors by Poseidon, and they became known as a patron saint of sailors. Now, on one of these trips, either in an argument over women or over a cattle deal gone wrong, Castor was killed in battle. Pollux was understandably devastated and begged for his father Zeus to aid him. Again, there are a few variations on what happened here. Some say that Pollux asked to be stripped of his immortality so as not to live without his brother, but others state that he asked Zeus to imbue Castor with immortality so that they could live forever together. And yet another one states that Pollux asked Zeus to bring Castor back to life, and Zeus agreed if they would each spend half their time on Earth and half among the stars. This last idea is supported in Homer's Odyssey, which states that the two alternated, with one being dead one day, the other alive, and vice versa the next day. This one makes me kind of sad, because if they are dead and alive on alternating days, opposite each other, they can't ever hang out again. So that's kind of sad. But another Greek poet, Pindar, states the twins shared their immortality and switched daily between Mount Olympus and Hades. Now, regardless of the details, due to this deal, this is now why we see them hanging out forever in the sky. And sailors were known to say that if you can see both stars, you know the trip will be good, but only one foretells bad luck. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I couldn't find too much outside of the Greek myth. In Babylonian culture, these were seen as the great twins and represented two minor gods whose names meant, quote, the one who had arisen from the underworld and, quote, mighty king. So one is a zombie and one is a king, which doesn't seem super fair. But these can also be understood as titles of Nurgle, the major Babylonian god of plague and pestilence, king of the underworld. This association carried on into the Ilias, where both twins were treated as dead. In other cultures, the two are treated as two of a kind or as a balanced pair. In Egypt, we have two twin goats. Arabia is two twin peacocks. In Hindu culture, we have the first couple to inhabit the earth, Yama and his sister Yami, who was later his wife. In the Vedic and Tibetan versions, these two are again related to the underworld and the ruling of spirits. We also have the yin and the yang. We have two horsemen, two gazelles. And in India and North America, we have a married couple. So that is all that I have for you guys today. I truly hope you have learned something new and have enjoyed this episode. If you're enjoying Clear Skies, please, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening, as that is the absolute best way to help us reach new listeners. Please also just share this podcast with everyone that you know and make sure you're subscribed so you will get each episode directly to your feed. All of our resources, photographs, and maps are located on this episode's page at clearskieswithchloe.com. You can also reach out to me directly on Instagram at clearskieswithchloe. Now that is Chloe with a C because I am not a Kardashian. So I would love to hear your thoughts, suggestions, opinions, questions, anecdotes, corrections, anything and everything that you would like to share. 
We will also be doing varied astronomy topics, so if there are any topics you'd like us to cover, definitely let me know. Again, thank you so, so much for joining me and wishing you clear skies ahead. Clear Skies is written and edited by me, Chloe, but it is also quality and fact-checked by fellow astronomer and my best friend Skylar Self and by professional nerd Robbie Hunt.